This is the Foreign Affairs Inbox, a podcast providing analysis of critical global issues by the Elliott School of International Affairs here at George Washington University. And I'm your host, Koji Flindeau. You're listening to the Foreign Affairs Inbox. I'm your host, Koji. Today, we're joined by Professor Melanie McAllister. She's a professor of international affairs and also of American studies here at George Washington University. She's the author of the recent The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, A Global History of American Evangelicals. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So to kick us off, one important question when we're talking about evangelicals is just who they are, because I think there's a common perception of who they are. And in your book, you sort of elucidate as to who they actually are in some cases. Yes, I think the evangelical community, even just in the U.S., is more complicated than people sometimes know. We usually define evangelicals by what they believe and a set of beliefs that include thinking that the Bible is authoritative, highly authoritative, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, a few things like that that define evangelical faith. But when we think about who evangelicals are, that set of beliefs includes a lot more diverse people than we often realize. So in the U.S. today, evangelicals are probably about 75% white, maybe as few as 65%, depending on who's doing the counting or the polling. And then highly uh, large numbers of other people, Latinos, African Americans, Asian Americans, are the rest of the evangelical community in the U.S. So it is a largely white community, but it is pretty much reflective of the diversity of American life overall, and maybe even more diverse than American life overall. So we need to be sure when we're talking about American evangelicals to include that. Mm. And then if we think about it globally, and we think about who evangelicals are when we look at the whole globe, then we're talking about a faith that is largely based in the global south, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, so that about 70% of the world's Christians are now living outside the U.S. and Europe, and that is growing fast, Mm -hmm. and it's even higher for evangelicals and Pentecostals. Wow. And so I'm glad that you took it to the global scale, because that was sort of my next question, which is just how have American evangelicals in particular understood themselves as part of a global community, as a global faith, like the one that you mentioned? You know, it's been a struggle for American evangelicals to get aware of that, that Mm. for a long time they saw themselves as connected to the world primarily through missionary work. And of course, that remains important. They are very committed to missionary work in general. But over time, Due to all the reasons that we've all become more global, media, technology, travel, those kinds of things, people begin to become more aware of this rising global community outside of the U.S. And then also there were a range of political events that made them aware. Everything from I talk about decolonization in the Congo in the book and the ways in which Congolese Christians made themselves known to American Christians as there was a war and conflict going on there. I mean, the early 1960s to an event in 1974, which is an international congress that is a global congress that brings people from all over the world to talk about the future of evangelical life. It's called the Lausanne Congress. And even there, Billy Graham is saying, you know, the next Billy Graham is clearly going to be from the global south. He would have said the third world then. But even then, there was already kind of an uprising led by Latin Americans Mm. who said – We need evangelicals to pay attention to oppression, racism, materialism, and other kinds of sin, not just individual sin. And we're really trying to push the community. So it's not just that 
oh, hey, there's a lot of evangelicals elsewhere, but they have their own agendas that are sometimes pushing Americans in ways that can be uncomfortable, but that they've had to hear. And can you talk a little bit about those agendas that you mentioned, like people in the Congo, people in apartheid South Africa, what their perspective on the role of American evangelicals has been and how they can help in their struggles? Yes, that's a great question. And I do talk about it in a range of ways, but I'll pick up on apartheid since that's a chapter that I really loved writing. But what I found was that evangelicals in South Africa, both white and black South African evangelicals, were playing a leading role internationally in trying to get people to respond to apartheid. From the early 1970s, when Billy Graham came to South Africa for the first time and gave a series of sermons, and those were integrated events, so that was a big deal in South South Africa. And even then, local evangelicals were pushing, you need to pay attention to what's going on here. Um, White and black evangelicals were talking about apartheid as a problem that Americans needed to respond to. And then by the 1980s, I mean, again, it, it was hard for South African evangelicals, both black and white, to get beyond their own sense that maybe politics isn't what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to focus on Jesus and faith Mm. and all of that stuff. But then they were in this situation of crisis. And so in 1986, the group of people who were in Soweto actually Mm. organized something that became the Evangelical Declaration Against Apartheid, Evangelical Witness Against Apartheid. And that document was circulated globally, and it really insisted that people around the world needed to respond to apartheid. And it had a lot of pretty critical things to say about America and some very specific things to say Mm -hmm. because – Jimmy Swaggart had just shown up in South Africa. He was a televangelist who was well-known in the 80s and quite conservative. And he had said, look, I'm preaching to integrated audiences. Apartheid is dead. And these evangelicals said this was so offensive to them. And they said, how can Americans show up and lecture us about what the situation with apartheid? We are here. We know that apartheid is alive and that it kills. Mm. So there's some very strong pushback and they pushed hard. And eventually, you know, American evangelicals still were way behind other denominations like Southern Baptists were behind Episcopals and Presbyterians and Methodists in taking stances against apartheid, but they were pushed to do so and often pushed to do so by South Africans. And and you say that they've been pushed hard and took on a leading role internationally in things like the evangelical witness against apartheid. And in all of that agitation and mobilization that we saw in the evangelical community, what has the impact of that been on American politics, on international politics? Well, in the situation of apartheid, it's a bit unfortunate how little impact it seemed to have Mm. in the sense that the evangelical community was, as I said, not taking stances as strongly as other church groups were. But it did lead to a sense that American evangelicals realized that they were responsible for thinking about things beyond their borders in ways that maybe they had not been doing so intensely before. Hmm. And they'd been thinking a lot about communism and had been talking a lot about the dangers of communist depression. And one of the ways that folks who were anti-apartheid in the U.S. and there were some evangelicals on the left who were clearly anti-apartheid in the U.S. One of the ways they pushed was to use some of the same language that people had used against communism to use against Mm. apartheid. So they would say the body of Christ is suffering. Christians are suffering in South Africa. And so they would talk about black South African Christians as other Christians. And most black South Africans at that point were Christian. And so they talked about just as people had suffered under communism, now Christians are suffering under apartheid or 
along with that. And so they use some of that same language to try to get people on board. And so some of that language, the idea of body politics, of the suffering body of Christianity abroad, has informed a lot of the way that evangelicals understand their role in combating religious persecution. Could you speak a little bit about the effect that that ideology or that perspective has had on evangelical activism? When people talk about the suffering body of others, it often leads to a kind of social justice politics. They say people are hungry. People are being oppressed by the South African government. People are being shot on the street in South Africa. We need to respond to that suffering. And so there is a strong social justice component of this body politics. And At the same time, that notion of Christianity as a suffering body, a global body, and the focus on suffering Christians can lead to people paying attention to Christian suffering over and against other people's suffering. Mm. Or misreading certain situations as religious conflict when they are other kinds of conflict. So over time, the notion of Christian persecution or Christians being persecuted has become more and more central. I mean, it was important in the days of communism, but has become more and more central to U.S. and European and African political discourse. And people talk about the suffering of Christians vis-a-vis Muslims often. Mm. So Muslims have kind of taken over the position that communists once had in American evangelical Christian ideology as persecutors of Christians. And that leads to a number of problems. One is it, as I mentioned, it leads people to misunderstand situations. So I talk a lot about the situation in Sudan in the early 2000s where there was a civil war that had been going on for a long time between North and South that American evangelicals and others tended to read as a Christian-Muslim conflict, but was in fact much more complicated than that and played into religion, but was fueled by many other things too, including oil and ethnicity and the usual range of things you might imagine that fuel major global conflicts. And that led them to support the independence of South Sudan and play a major role. I mean, this is one of the places where evangelicals were most politically effective in the stories that I tell in the book. But then when South Sudan became an independent country and then fell into civil war in Mm. southern Sudan, American evangelicals who had spent a lot of time thinking about South Sudan had nothing to say because it wasn't a Muslim-Christian conflict. It couldn't be perceived as that. And so their attention wandered. We have to think about when that notion of focusing on Christian persecution both leads to increased anti-Muslim hostility and to misunderstanding and leads to Americans who see themselves now as more and more part of this global community of Christians. It can lead Americans to see themselves as also persecuted Mm. because they're part of this Christian community that they see as persecuted globally. And that makes no sense to a lot of other people outside the community and often to me as well. In 2017, there was a poll and they asked American evangelicals, did Christians face a lot of persecution in the U.S.? And 54 percent said yes. Wow. And then they asked them if Muslims faced a lot of persecution or discrimination in the U.S., and 44% said yes. So people saw themselves as more discriminated against than Muslims, which seems just irrational, but you can place it in the context of this global logic and see where it's coming from, which does not, in my mind, excuse it, but explains it. And so those perceptions and misperceptions of understanding American Christians to be among the persecuted has led evangelicals to pursue a sort of agenda of religious freedom in some sense. How has that played itself out, particularly in sort of the the 70s and 80s? And how does that inform evangelical politics today? 
Yes. So religious freedom is such a common thing that people are talking about these days. And it was one of the reasons that many people who supported President Trump, evangelicals who supported President Trump, gave for supporting him that he would be speaking out on behalf of religious freedom. And that has led to a lot of things. One is one of the early versions of the so-called Muslim ban that the Trump administration put forward explicitly said that they hope to give priority to Christians from Syria and other places for immigration because they are persecuted. And that notion that Christians were particularly persecuted in Syria, which is simply not true, everybody was suffering in Syria in different ways, profoundly, came from this larger discourse about persecution. But it also, when people see religious freedom or persecution as this global issue, then lots of things get folded into that. So a lot of times when American evangelicals say we want to support religious freedom, they often mean the freedom to discriminate against lesbian and gay people in public accommodation in the U.S., And so that sense that religious freedom is about things that it didn't used to be about, including this question of public accommodation, has odd global connections. But there are global connections to it because it doesn't make sense to talk about it as a religious freedom issue because religious freedom is such a powerful issue outside of this global context. Religious freedom in the United States and particularly in American politics is one big sticking point, as you mentioned previously. How much of that can be attributed to the sway that evangelicals can hold on a American politics. And where does that sort of derive itself from? Well, actually, you might be surprised, but I'm going to say not that much in the Mm. sense of evangelicals have a huge role to play, but also conservative Catholics have played a major role in this. And a number of other people who have arguments about the right to hold discriminatory views about LGBTQ people. One of the interesting things, as an aside, let me just say that this is a major issue for a lot of evangelicals, but it is one of the issues that you see the most distinction between evangelical baby boomers and older and Mm. millennials and younger. So on abortion, all generations tend to be similarly opposed to abortion, but younger evangelicals tend to be much more in favor of lesbian and gay and queer rights than their older Um, colleagues. And so this seems like the cutting edge issue right now, but we might see real changes over time if that continues, because there's a huge distinction in how they see those issues. Right. And one other issue that's really relevant in domestic politics is that of U.S. support for Israel. For some people looking from the outside in, it can be kind of odd, right? It's an evangelical organization really staunchly supporting the Jewish state. And so my question then is how that arose and what the politics of evangelical support um, for Israel are. Yes, that's a good question, and I'll try to keep it brief because I could go on and on. But (laughs) there's a tradition, a long tradition of evangelical support for Israel that comes out of a focus on end times theology and the idea that when Jesus returns again to bring peace and justice to the world, it will be in Israel that that happens and that it has to do with the return of Jews to the Holy Land is one of the requirements for this to happen. And so 1947 and then 1967 were both considered big dates in the end times chronology. And so there was a lot of talk about Israel as crucial to God's plan for Jesus's return. And that was one of the major reasons that evangelicals tended to be very strongly supportive of Israel. And I wrote about that in my first book that was about American perceptions of the Middle East. And I wrote about it in this book. 
But I also talk in this book about the fact that there are more kind of prosaic reasons, including a lot of Holy Land tourism. So that the very fact that Americans go and do these Holy Land tours over and over again, usually with Israeli tour guides, that Israel itself has known for some time that American evangelicals were an important group to try to influence and other Christians, Catholics and others too, and that those tours have played a role in developing a sense that Israel is a place that evangelicals feel emotionally attached to. It's a place where Jesus walked. It's a place that matters to them religiously. And then the Israelis try to make sure that that gets tied into a notion of modern Israel as morally just. I will say that there is some pushback that didn't used to be there. I mean, American evangelicals played a huge role in Trump's decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. There's no question about that. But there is a little bit of change or change in the evangelical community. There's a group of not necessarily liberal evangelicals, but I'll say that liberal-ish evangelicals Mm. who have been globally having a meeting every two years in Bethlehem run with Palestinian evangelicals who run Bethlehem Bible College because evangelicals are everywhere. But Palestinian evangelicals and these Americans have been holding these meetings that are called Christ at the Checkpoint, which really talk about the thinking about Palestinian perspectives on what's going on in that region, which would have been unheard of 20 years ago. Right. Now, you've mentioned a few generational differences and trends that we see in the evangelical community regarding their perceptions. And clearly, this is a complex and nuanced topic. Um, But to wrap us up, what do you think is the trajectory of evangelical um, beliefs and politics based on the sort of generational change and the overall change in, in American politics that we see? You know, before President Trump's election, I thought that the biggest change in evangelical life in the U.S. was really going to be about race. Mm. And it was going to become a community that was increasingly and self-consciously diverse with more and more leadership from Asian Americans and Latinos and African Americans. That seemed to me to be clear. And that was true for younger people who were willing to see themselves as part of these multiracial churches and involved in interversity Christian fellowships and other organizations that are multiracial. But with President Trump's election, I did some interviews and I did a piece on evangelicals of color since Trump's election. And I saw the pieces titled from a quote by one of the women that I interviewed. It's called A Kind of Homelessness. And she talked about having been all her life in multiracial white dominated, but multiracial evangelicalism, university, uh, evangelicals for social action, multiracial churches, but that knowing how many white evangelicals had supported Trump, she felt increasingly alienated. And two of the other people said the exact same thing, that he'd done all this work on racism and racial issues. And he's an African-American guy in Missouri, and she's an Asian-American woman here in D.C. They're in very different parts of the movement, and they had the same things to say, which is, You know, you're sitting next to somebody in church who's a white person and you're thinking to yourself, so Mm. that racism thing with (laughs) Trump, that just wasn't a deal breaker for you, huh? Right. You could just vote for him. And, you know, of course, they don't know who anybody voted for necessarily, but that sense of alienation is so profound that I do wonder whether, in fact, what we're going to see instead of a more... You know, my book, I claim it's more racially diverse and politically ambidextrous than anybody ever knew. I wonder if we're going to see actually a community that fractures where we don't have anything we might call one evangelicalism, but a range of them. Sure. And that's something to watch. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Foreign Affairs Inbox from the Elliott School of International Affairs. If you liked what you listened to today, make sure to hit subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend. Our show is produced by Dave Haft. Our editor is Christina Wan, and thanks to the public affairs team, 
Robin Kahn and Kalev Kent, for their collaboration.